You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a five-part series of messages on the new life in Christ that John Stott presented at Founders Week 1977. John Stott was an author and rector emeritus of All Souls Church in London, England. Now, here is John Stott on Today in the Word radio. I'm very grateful to my good friend, Dr. Sweeting, for his kind words of welcome and introduction. And I'd like to say at once what a privilege I count it to be here for Founders Week. I'd like just to tell you that D.L. Moody was one of my uh, great Christian heroes soon after my conversion at the age of about 17. I read avidly all the books by R.A. Torrey that I could get hold of. I was nurtured on revival addresses and real salvation and all the rest. But one of the books that was most meaningful to me as a young man was Torrey's little essay, Why God Used D.L. Moody. And I think I read that so many times I almost knew it by heart. And I used to pray in those days that God would enable me to give myself without reserve to him, just as D.L. Moody had done. So it's good to be associated with you in Founders Week. I'm not sure if you know that we're going to attempt on these five mornings to work our way through the book of Ephesians. It may seem ludicrous to attempt in five brief periods of about 40 minutes to encompass the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. In some ways, it is ludicrous. There are depths of divine truth in this letter which we shall not be able to fathom in a lifetime. Nevertheless, I think our task will be worthwhile because one of our characteristic weaknesses is that we concentrate so much on the microscopic study of the text that we miss the overview And I pray that God will enable us to grasp the overview of Ephesians. I'm certain all of you know that the letter is divided into two halves. In the first three chapters, Paul declares what God has done through Jesus Christ. And in the last three chapters, four to six, he tells us what we must do and be in consequence. What has God done? Well, through the death and the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus, God has given us a new life and God has created a new society. This new society is a single new humanity, redeemed and reconciled to God and to one another, the Christian church. And as a result of that, God's people must live a new life. We are a new society, a new community, and therefore we must live a new life with new standards of purity and unity and harmony. Our subject then this morning is the new life that God has given us in Christ. Our subject tomorrow morning is the new society that God has created through Christ. And then in the following mornings, we shall think about the new standards 
that he expects of his new society. Firstly, then, this morning, the new life that God has given us in Jesus. Chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 1, and we shall go on to chapter 2 and verse 10. We've only time to glance at the opening verse, but I don't want anybody to miss how Paul describes himself. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. We are not listening these days, these mornings, to a man, whether myself as I try to explain the letter, or to Paul as a mere fallible human teacher. No, no. We are listening to an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. An apostle was one who was chosen, authorized, commissioned, inspired by Jesus Christ. We are listening to Paul as an infallible teacher of the church because he teaches in the name and with the authority of Jesus Christ. In fact, we may go further and say that we are listening to Jesus Christ himself as he speaks to us today through his chosen and inspired and infallible Apostle Paul. Let us come humbly then to listen to this teaching of Christ. The rest of our passage, the rest of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, is divided into two sections. The first is praise. He begins verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the great paean of praise. And the second is prayer, beginning with verse 15. Praise that God has blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual blessing, and then a prayer that God will open our eyes to grasp the fullness of the blessing with which he has blessed us. Firstly, then, the praise. Chapter 1, verse 3, onwards. In the Greek sentence, it is a single, complex sentence running right down to verse 14 without stopping. I want to ask you to look particularly at verse 3. This doxology, this eulogy, for that is what the Greek word is, this expression of praise to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Three times, you see, the word blessing comes. And it is a Trinitarian blessing. The origin of the blessing is God the Father. The sphere of the blessing is God the Son. The God has blessed us if we are in Christ. And it's only if we are in Christ, united to Jesus Christ by faith, that we can receive the blessing of God. It's from the Father, it's in the Son. And it's every spiritual blessing, spiritual as opposed to material, in the heavenly places as opposed to on earth. And this spiritual blessing could be translated every blessing 
of the Holy Spirit. So God the Father has given us in God the Son every conceivable blessing of God the Holy Spirit. No blessing has been withheld. If we're in Christ, of course we have to grow into maturity in Christ. Of course there may be many deeper, richer, fuller experiences along the way, but already if we are in Christ, then all spiritual blessings are ours. What are they? Well, let's look at them. He speaks to us of the past, the present, and the future. The past blessing is the blessing of election, verses 4 to 6. Paul reaches back in his mind before the foundation of the world, verse 4, before creation, before time began, into an eternity when only God existed in the fullness of his divine being. And in that pre-creation eternity, God did something. He formed a purpose in his mind. He chose us in Christ to be his children. If I'm not greatly mistaken, everybody finds the doctrine of election difficult. I'm tempted to say, hands up if you don't. But I don't think I would see any hands up because everybody finds the doctrine of divine election a mysterious and a difficult doctrine. But let us recall together that it is a divine revelation, this doctrine. It is not a human speculation. The doctrine of election was not invented by Augustine or by Calvin or any other human theologian. It is a biblical doctrine, and no biblical Christian can escape it. In the Old Testament, God chose Israel out of all the nations of the earth, and in the New Testament, he has chosen us to be his people. So let's not reject it as if it were some weird fantasy of human beings. It is a revealed doctrine. It is part of the revelation of God in Scripture. One other thing about it, and that is it is an incentive to holiness and not an excuse for sin. Some people say, well, you know, I'm one of the chosen people of God, so there's no need for me to bother about holiness. I can live as I please. I'm safe and secure because I'm one of the elect. No, no, nobody can argue like that. If you have your text open and look at verse 4, you'll see that God has chosen us in Christ in order that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. So you see, holiness is the very purpose of our election. And the ultimate proof that we are the chosen people of God is that we are living a holy and a Christ-like life. So that's the first blessing, the past blessing of election. And all we can do is fall on our faces and worship God that in the mystery of his own gracious will, he has chosen us to be his own people. B, the second blessing, is the present blessing of adoption into the family of God. Verses 5 to 8. We've seen that God has chosen us in Christ, that we might be holy, and also 
he has destined us, verse 5, to be his sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So election, you see, is with a view to adoption. He has chosen us to be his children, to be his sons and daughters, with all the privileges that are included in being a son and a daughter of God. Oh, I hope, my friends, that there isn't any of you here who isn't still thrilled with the privilege of being a child of God. What a wonderful thing that God, the creator of the universe, should have condescended to become our father and that he should have adopted us into his family, made us his children, so that we have the forgiveness of our sins and redemption through his blood and all the privileges of being members of his family. Then see the third blessing, the past blessing of election, the present blessing of adoption, and the future blessing of unification under the headship of Christ. Verses 9 and 10. God has made known to us, that is, Paul and his fellow apostles, his plan for the fullness of the time. That is to say, when time merges into eternity again in the future. And that plan is to unite everything in and under Christ. What is this everything that is going to be united under the lordship and the headship of Jesus? Well, I have to begin by saying that we cannot use this text, verses 9 and 10, as a foundation on which to build universalistic dreams that everybody is going to be saved in the end. We cannot do that for the simple reason that in other places, including this epistle, Scripture teaches the awful and eternal doom of the impenitent wicked. Scripture does not teach universalism, universal salvation. No biblical Christian can be a universalist. So what is included in this everything that is going to be united under the headship of Christ? Well, certainly the Christian living and the Christian dead. The church on earth and the church in heaven. The church militant and the church triumphant. Both parts of the church are one day going to be united under the headship of Christ and angels as well. But this phrase, all things, usually in the writings of Paul, means the universe, the created universe. So Paul seems to be referring here to that cosmic renewal, that regeneration of the whole universe, that liberation of the groaning creation that he has written about in Romans 8. And God's plan is that all things, the universe that was created through Christ, holds together in Christ, will one day be united under Christ in the fullness of the time to come. So that the New English Bible translates it that the universe might be brought into a unity in Christ. So you see in the fullness of the time, 
It's God's purpose that his whole church and his whole creation will be unified under the headship of Jesus. Let me pause a moment to say how much all of us need this eternal perspective of the Apostle Paul. Let me remind you that when Paul is writing this or dictating it, he is a prisoner in Rome. No, not in a dungeon yet, but in his own hired house, under house arrest, chained by the wrist to a Roman soldier from whom he cannot escape. But although his wrist was chained and his body was confined, his mind and his heart inhabited eternity. He appeared back before the foundation of the world into a past eternity. He appeared on to the fullness of the time into a future eternity. And he considered what Christians are and what Christians enjoy and possess in the present in the light of those two eternities. It's enough to blow your mind. And how small is our mind in comparison with the Apostle Paul's? How restricted is our vision? How narrow are our horizons? How easily we get engrossed and preoccupied in our own silly little world and our own silly little affairs. We need our hearts and our minds to grow until they too inhabit eternity. And we live in the present in the light of these two eternities. And then, like the Apostle Paul, our whole life will be a pean of praise. Get Paul's perspective and you will echo Paul's praise. We've only time just to glance at the next little paragraph, verses 11 to 14, in which his emphasis is that these blessings, past, present, and future, election, adoption, and unification, belong now not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, if they are in Christ. And in this little paragraph, he repeats two phrases that he has already used on a couple on two occasions, already in the letter, namely that everything is according to the purpose of God's will, verse 11, according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things, according to the counsel of his will. And the second phrase at the end of the next verse 12, that we are destined and appointed to live for the praise of his glory. Now, we could spend all morning on those two phrases. It's so tantalizing to all of us that we can only just mention them in passing. Let me ask, is that your perspective, that everything is according to the purpose of God's will, for that is where it begins, and everything is for the praise of God's glory, for that is where it ends? Everything begins in the will of God and ends in the glory of God, so that if we are the people of God, we are living to the praise of his glory. I'm thankful that one of my former colleagues in London, in the church where I still serve about six months in the year at All Souls Langham Place, 
One of my colleagues, when he left our church team, gave me a little paper knife on which he'd had inscribed the words to the praise of his glory. And there this little paper knife sits on my desk, stares me in the face as I'm sitting at my desk, that God's purpose for me and for all his people is not that we should live for the praise of our own glory, but that we should live for the praise of his glory in time and in eternity. Well, that's the first section, praise. Now we turn to the second section, chapter 1, verse 15, to chapter 2, verse 10, and we call this not praise, but prayer. For he says, for this reason, verse 15, because I've heard of your faith and your love, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That, and he launches out into prayer. Let's notice then the construction of the whole passage we're looking at this morning, that it consists of praise and prayer. But I would like to suggest to you that it is, an ex it is extremely important for a healthy and a balanced Christian life to keep Christian praise and Christian prayer, Christian worship and Christian petition together in relation to one another. Praise that all spiritual blessings are ours if we are in Christ, and prayer that we may know them in our own experience. You see, there are some Christians who seem to do little else but pray for new spiritual blessings. A second blessing and a third blessing and a fourth blessing and they seem to do nothing but pray for more blessings, apparently oblivious of the fact that according to verse 3, if we are in Christ, God has already blessed us with all spiritual blessings. If we have Christ, we have everything that is in Christ. But then there are others who make the opposite mistake. They emphasize so much that everything is already theirs in Christ that they become spiritually complacent. They no longer hunger to know Christ better or to experience more deeply all those blessings that are already theirs in Christ. I want to say there's no need to polarize in this respect. Let's keep praising God that everything is ours already if we are Christ's. And then let's pray that we may know the fullness of what he has given us in Christ. Know it in our minds. Know it in our experience. And if we keep praise and prayer together, we are unlikely to lose our spiritual balance. What then is the prayer? Well, it's a prayer for knowledge. It's a prayer that the eyes of our heart, because all of us have two pairs of eyes, two eyes in our head and two eyes in our heart. It's good to have four eyes. And the prayer is that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened so that we may know things with spiritual discernment which we cannot see with the eyes of our head. 
It's a prayer that the Holy Spirit will enlighten or illumine our spiritual eyes so that we may know certain things. Three things in particular. The hope of God's call, the wealth of the glory of God's inheritance, and the greatness of his power. First, the hope of God's call. Well, the call of God takes us back to the beginning of our Christian life. Our Christian life began when God called us to himself through Jesus Christ, and by grace we responded to his call. But now Paul prays that we may know the hope of God's call. That is to say that we may enjoy the full expectation that is ours because of the calling of God. God's calling was not a random thing. God called us for a purpose. And so Paul prays that we may know the purpose for which God called us. And you'd find it a very meaningful study to look up in the New Testament all references to the call of God. You'll find that he's called us to belong to Christ, that he's called us to be saints, he's called us to be holy as he is holy, he's called us to freedom, he's called us to peace and to live in harmony, he's called us into his kingdom and into his eternal glory. And Paul prays that we may know the hope of God's call, everything that God has called us to be and to do and to enjoy. Secondly, B, that we may know the glory of his inheritance. Well, if the call of God takes us back to the beginning of the Christian life, the inheritance looks on to the end of our Christian life. Because if we're the children of God, we are his heirs. And one day, the inheritance is going to be ours. And Paul prays that we may know the, the glory of God's inheritance. Indeed, the riches of the glory of his inheritance. Everything that's going to be ours in the end. When we're going to see Christ and be changed into the image of Christ. And have a body of glory like the body of Christ's. And are going to enter the new heaven and the new earth and all these fantastic things that make up the inheritance that is one day going to be ours. Paul prays that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened, that we may know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So the hope of his calling, the glory of his inheritance. And then thirdly, the greatness of his power. And if God's call belongs to the beginning of our Christian life and his inheritance the end of the Christian life, then his power spans the interval between. It is the power of God that can bring us from our call safe to the glory that we shall inherit in the end. And Paul adds word to word in order to indicate that he wants us to know the energy of the might of his strength. He wants us to know the greatness of his power, indeed the surpassing greatness of the power of God. How can we know that? Some of us here have such a puny idea of the power of God. Because we know our own weakness, we think God probably hasn't got much more power than we have. 
And we need to know the greatness, the greatness of his power, the surpassing greatness of the power of God that is adequate for all our needs. How can we know it? Well, partly when our eyes are opened to see it. Paul prays that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened, that we may see spiritually the greatness of his power. But it's not just by this inner illumination that we will know the power of God. God has also given us an objective, historical demonstration of his power. And that is a double demonstration. It is in the resurrection and ascension of Christ, on the one hand, and in the resurrection and ascension of Christians on the other. And we have to look at those two things for the rest of our time. First, the resurrection and ascension of Christ. God's power has been demonstrated in raising and exalting Jesus to his right hand. Verses 19 to 23. Paul refers in verse 20 to two great historical events. The resurrection. He wants us to know the power of his great might that he accomplished in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. That's the ascension and session. So by the resurrection, God raised Jesus from the dead, and by his ascension, he set him above all the principalities and powers of evil and put everything under his feet. So that in the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, God has overcome both death and evil. And that is a tremendous demonstration of divine power. Because if there are two powers that we cannot control, they are the power of death on the one hand and the power of evil on the other. Man is mortal, he cannot escape death. Man is fallen, he cannot overcome evil. But God in Jesus Christ has overcome them both. And therefore, he can rescue us from birth. First, he overcame death. Now, death is a bitter and a relentless enemy. It comes to all of us sometime. Unless we're alive when Jesus comes, and we're translated and changed in the twinkling of an eye, otherwise we're all going to die. We can't escape it. I remember an elderly lady in our own congregation in London who was taken as an emergency to hospital, and when I went to visit her in hospital, she'd perked up a bit, and as I stood at her bedside, she said to me, she opened her eyes, and she said, you know, when I got into hospital, they all gathered round me as if I was going to die. But she said, I decided I wasn't going to die. Well, it was a spirited remark, but not an exactly accurate one. We cannot decide when we're going to die. As a matter of fact, she has died since and gone to heaven, for she was a Christian believer. But God has raised Jesus from the dead. God did not allow his Holy One to see corruption. He arrested the natural process of decay, and then he didn't just reverse it, restoring Jesus to this life, he transcended it. He raised Jesus to a new life, immortal, free, and glorious, 
which nobody had experienced before or since, but which we too are going to experience one day. God raised him from the dead. Then he not only overcame death, he overcame evil. He set Jesus at his right hand. He gave Jesus Christ the supreme position of honor and executive authority and power at his right hand. And he put everything under the feet of Jesus. All principalities and powers, whether good or evil. Jesus Christ has conquered them. They are under his feet. So Paul asks us to see Jesus as the supreme conqueror of death and evil. God's power in raising and exalting Jesus over death and evil. Oh, but that isn't the only thing. There has been now a second demonstration of the power of God, and that is in raising and exalting us. If we are in Christ, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, for this great power of God that he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand is available for us. It has raised us from the death of Christ and set us at God's right hand in Christ. In order to emphasize the greatness of God's power in our Christian experience, Paul plums the depths of pessimism about man in the first three verses of chapter 2. He tells us what man is by nature. He says that men and women are dead, verse 1, in trespasses and sins. Or they may be alive in body, they may have an alert mind, they may have the scintillating personality of a television star, but they are dead in, in their soul, spiritually dead, dead in the trespasses and sins in which they walk. And one of the greatest tragedies of the human condition today is that men and women who are created by God and for God should be living without God, dead in trespasses and sins. And they're not only dead, they're slaves of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And in these verses, Paul mentions all three. He says that uh, before we were in Christ, we were living according to the course of this world, that's pop culture, the world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil. And we're slaves of the passions of the flesh. That's our fallen nature. So human beings are not only dead, but they're slaves of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And thirdly, they are condemned under the wrath of God. Verse 3, we were by nature the children of wrath, the objects of the wrath or holy displeasure and condemnation of God, even as the rest of mankind. Is that too pessimistic? I think not. It is not, of course, the whole truth about men and women. Human beings are also made in the image of God. Although that image is marred and spoiled by sin, vestiges of the divine image remain in man. There is a certain nobility, a certain dignity about human beings because made in God's image. But in spite of that fact, they are dead and slaves and condemned. Therefore, they cannot save themselves. Education will not save them. Legislation will not redeem them. 
Only God's mighty power and grace can reach men and women in this their human predicament. So Paul goes on in verse 4, But God, two great words, a mighty adversative in the text. However low man has fallen, but God, for his great love with which he has loved us. For what has he done? The wonderful thing is that now Paul coins three verbs. He takes up what God has done to Christ in raising and exalting and setting him at his right hand, and by adding a little prefix, meaning together with, he links us with Christ at each stage. So, verse 5, he made us alive with Christ, the resurrection. Verse 6, he raised us up with Christ, the ascension. Verse 6, he made us sit with Christ in heavenly places, the session. These three verbs relate to the three successive events in the saving career of Jesus. Resurrection, ascension, session. But the wonderful thing is that Paul is not describing Christ in these verses. He is describing us. He says that if we are in Christ by faith, then God has resurrected us from the death of sin, has exalted us to heaven, made us sit at the right hand of God if we're in Christ. Brother, sister, do you ever think of yourself like that? Do you realize that we're risen and ascended and seated with Christ in heavenly places? Oh, I know we are in the Moody Auditorium in Chicago, but we're also in heaven and in Christ, risen, ascended, and seated. And if we're seated at God's right hand with Christ, what do you think we're sitting on? Thrones. That's what Christ is sitting on, a throne. He's the occupant of the throne of God at his right hand. So if we're seated with Christ in heavenly places, we are enthroned with Christ. And everything is under our feet if it is under Christ's. So where are the things of which you're afraid? Where are the things that get us down under the feet of Christ? So let me conclude on this note. What is your weakness? I think I know what mine is. It's not singular, it's plural. I know what my weaknesses are. Do you know what yours are? Is it your tongue, your temper, your thoughts, lust, ambition, malice, jealousy? You know your weaknesses? These things are altogether beyond the power of man to control. You cannot control them. I cannot control them. But listen, are they beyond the mighty power of God? Of course they're not. We need to bring our human weakness and put it alongside his divine power, the power that raised Christ from the dead and set him at God's right hand and put everything under his feet, the power that has raised us from the death of sin and exalted us to heaven and enthroned us with Christ at God's right hand. They're under our feet. 
We need to see our weaknesses in the light of this mighty power of God. And only then, I think, shall we begin to experience the liberation that is ours in Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your mighty power demonstrated in the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and in our resurrection, ascension, and session with him so that all things in Christ are under our feet. Enable us to know this with our minds and then to know it in our experience. For the glory of your great and worthy name. Amen. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and a message on the new life in Christ that John Stott presented at Founders Week 1977. John Stott was an author and rector emeritus of All Souls Church in London, England. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.